Claude Monet said, every day I discover more and more beautiful things. And I think real estate uh, offers this quote. It really does. Uh, Real estate is a humanistic experience for people. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show is a code cracker. We're going to dig into architecture and, of course, what that means for property investors. Can property investors make money out of real estate and real estate architecture? Does good architecture bring with it extra demand for real estate. We're going to have that discussion today. It's a massive discussion. And I tell you what, if it's your first time tuning into the show, welcome aboard. All the episodes of the Urban Property Investor are lessons on real estate. So feel free to dart about. And of course, as many long-term listeners know, well, you got to play the show in double speed so you can do some other things with your day. Otherwise, uh, you'll be listening to this episode for a good hour, no doubt. My episodes tend to go for about an hour. So chop that in two, do me in half an hour, move on with your day. Hey, architecture's always been something at uh, the core of me. Yes, the core of me. I've certainly, uh, for whatever reason, feel a ultra passion when it comes to seeing something beautiful, artistic, uh, when the right artistic design of real estate comes to market, I just go gaga for it. Um, And, you know, I, I know obviously a lot of Australians feel the same way. You know, you look at things like the TV show, The Block, it gets massive amounts of views. People want to be inspired by beautiful objects, whether that's beautiful designs inside a home or whether that's the architecture of a home as well. And today I want to give you a little bit of a lesson around architecture, a lesson around the history of architecture, the challenges with architecture and uh, the good properties out there in the marketplace which have been influenced by architecture and also architecture which was basically innovation at the time but has not stood the test of time. So for me, when I look at my life, uh, I can absolutely tell you uh, I grew up in a very strange, cold, uh, dark, itchy house and the house I first you know, knew I was in, I guess you would say, was was not a architecturally significant home. Um, it was almost like a house which was boarded together. And, um, you know, it was just a mishmash of everything. There was, uh, you know, an extra bathroom stuck on the side of the house. There was uh, laundry outside. There was, um, you know, the backyard was basically concrete Um you know, there wasn't the right access points to the home. You had to, you know, virtually walk through your neighbor's property through a right of way to get to the home. Um, It was not a beautiful designed home. It was a time when, um, you know, we uh, lived in, I guess, a little bit more of a simple fashion here in Australia. And certainly, Um, when I look back on my influence to love great design from real estate, I think that house was one of the big drivers for me because every time I went around my neighborhood just riding my bicycle and things like that, I would come across beautiful contemporary design homes. I would come across... um, you know, uh, Federation-style properties, beautiful sandstone houses, which, you know, look like, um, you know, they they could be Buckingham Palace. And I, I tell the story in one of my books that the house I grew up 
in was uh, certainly below the living standards of the era. And, you know, one of my first friends was a guy called Ted Grace. And Ted's grandfather had started Grace Brothers, which today is called Myers. And Ted uh, had a house um, which, you know, rivaled Buckingham Palace. It, it was that good. Um, it kind of looked like Buckingham Palace. And, you know, he, he lived uh, on the other side of the suburb where I grew up. Um, as you know, I grew up as Chernobyl boy. And uh, our Chernobyl house, if you like, was a real dump. Um, and so I got exposed to architecture very, very young. And it was always something that I associated as a way to create wealth, that if you had the right assets, which were more scarce in the marketplace, you just simply were going to make more money. And, you know, when I look back at uh, Ted's house, it's, you know, it's, uh, Ted's long moved out of that property, but that property still impresses. And uh, it was recently on The Bachelor, the TV show, The Bachelor. So when it comes to real estate, a lot of real estate is produced uh, into the future. We are going to see a massive population transformation in Australia. If you listen to my last episode on migration economics or population economics, you'd understand we need to build a Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane into the future, uh, another another one of each. And that's a lot of properties. That's a lot of apartments and houses. And with that, we're going to see over 51% of stock coming into the market uh, basically having never been existed before. So with that comes obviously uh, a lot of new builds, a lot of different designs. And also with that, we also can look at some of the existing properties on the marketplace and almost highlight which ones have really significant architecture and, of course, which ones are really past their use-by date and architecturally are just nonsense when it comes to their design and really uh, what they offer to the public realm. So today we're going to have the build to perform conversation. Remember, good improvements, bad economics, bad decision. Bad improvements, good economics, bad decision. Good improvements, great architecture, great design. Good economics, good decision. That's really one of the easiest ways to understand real estate. And of course, when growth eventually slows, uh, and it's still chugging along, but eventually it's going to slow, And what will replace growth is real estate at a niche level, which have something to offer, which is fundamentally scarce. Now, you guys are across the fact I teach the Forex growth plan, which is just the idea if we can buy well with a bit of a game plan, a bit of a strategy, whether we're Uh, you know, going off the plan, doing a renovation, knocking something down and rebuilding it, Uh, we're um, redesigning a property, amalgamating it, subdividing it, developing it. That's a way of buying, right? Getting a, a, a deal on the way in is a way of buying. Then we've got the location, which is probably the most important part. Uh, You can do what you want to real estate, but you can never fundamentally change its location. So location is is key, right? Location is key. Uh, Then we got the market. The market is doing a lot of the work for property investors at the moment, but that's not always the case. Um, You know, for every 10 years, there's kind of three good ones and, you know, seven sideways ones. And um, so you need to... uh, constantly work on this thing called growth. And one way to do that is to use the Forex growth plan because when natural market growth slows, if you've got a good suburb, you're going to do well. If you bought well, you're sort of creating growth on the way in. But then also you've got this behavioral growth, which again solidifies, particularly in a downturn, that your asset is very, very good. And when we look at the Forex growth plan and behavioral things which influence people's 
opinion on real estate. Real estate is an opinion sport. Uh, we can put architecture in that quadrant. Design and architecture uh, is equally as important as, for example, the ability to walk somewhere or the orientation of a property, right? So it is an interesting uh, dynamic when it comes to real estate and something that, again, I've been using for a long time and had really, really good success when it comes to making money out of making sure that what I buy, whether it's an apartment or a townhome or a house, actually has some influences which are going to, um, you know, stand the test of time. Claude Monet said, every day I discover more and more beautiful things. And I think real estate uh, offers this quote. It really does. Uh, Real estate is a humanistic experience for people. People want to use uh, great design to transform their life. And in real estate, we often forget that real estate investment is very much the investment of a human experience. Uh, Commercial real estate is a contracts business. You create contracts. um, It is very much spreadsheet based. It's lawyer on lawyer. However, when you're housing someone um, or you're trying to create wealth out of real estate, eventually someone may buy that real estate off you or you may hold on to it forever. It's a very humanistic experience. So at a grassroots level, architecture and design is simply about the idea of scarcity. Scarcity. If you've got something that is uh, scarcer than the rest of the market, you obviously have a point of difference. In general terms, architecture is basically about design that creates good functional outcomes for real estate in, you know, a cost-effective manner. That is really where architecture stems from. How do we give someone a very good living experience? And it's fair to say that most architecture and most designs and many new builds that come to market today and many historical architecture and many historical buildings are 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years old are just absolutely lemons when it comes to the humanistic experience that they provide the marketplace. So in specific terms, we want to find real estate, which has really good designs. It might have things like flexible flexible spaces, quality inclusions, great fittings, good natural light, great cross-flow ventilation. These are all the ideas around architecture today, particularly in a modern economy, which are important for property investors to put on their checklist. Architecture is about fundamentally three outcomes, providing shelter, manifesting culture, and manifesting wealth. Okay, I'll say that again. Providing shelter, Manifesting culture and manifesting wealth. Now, when I look back on the Gopnik little house that I lived in growing up, it was shelter, there was no culture, and there was no wealth, right? It basically was a roof over my head. When I analyze the uh, alternative homes in this rather wealthy suburb I grew up in, it was easy to see that the homes which were architecturally significant uh, manifested culture and they manifested wealth and not only provided shelter. Um, And for uh, certainly someone very, very young, seeing this and understanding this was a big certain driver for me to even get involved in real estate and, uh, you know, become someone who's really passionate about real estate. So the hidden truth of property investment is if you can find a piece of real estate that not only provides shelter, which equals rent, but manifests culture, and manifests and parks wealth, 
you're going to do very, very, very well out of the dwelling you buy. Now, you've got to understand there's a giant pool of money out in the marketplace. Uh, And really today, architecture, if you like, is driven off the back of finance. Uh, And I mentioned this in my last podcast. If you haven't heard the last podcast, it may actually help you understand this podcast a lot better. Um, I mentioned through population economics that we now are in the fire economy where uh, we see some of the finance industry, real estate industry and insurance industry really being big players and dictating how the economy is run and politicians running off the back of the fire engine, so to speak. Uh, And REITs today need to find homes for money. Um, There's a lot of money in superannuation. There's trillions of dollars floating around the world which needs to find a home. And of course, uh, those real estate firms can invest in obviously residential real estate and create, if you like, new communities. And uh, certainly the architecture that we often see around Australia is both good and bad. And a lot of it being the newer architecture is both good and bad. It's a two-tiered market based off finance, based off the ability for a certain uh, REIT or uh basically real estate investment trust to design a community, right? Remember the three pillars of architecture is to provide shelter, but also manifest culture and manifest wealth. And this is quite often you'll see a lot of buyers agents or, or um, you know, people who, you know, have a certain bias to a certain certain style of real estate, nothing wrong with that. Most people are pretty open about their bias. Um, But you'll often see people uh, that, uh, you know, openly say, well, house and land communities are shit, right? Um, However, if you look at the capital growth rates of house and land communities over the last 12 months, they've been very, very impressive. Are all house and land communities shit? No, not at all. Some are architectural masterpieces. Some are a great example of contemporary design. Some are a great example of the giant pool of money which create uh, beautiful, beautiful places of culture and a great storage of wealth. And so for every good property created, uh, there's certainly a bad one and there are some certainly bad housing estates. That's That's true of any real estate through any given era. So I think we need to just be mindful that when we're looking at real estate, whatever it is, we're looking at a a product which needs to be analysed within its surrounds and also within its context. And so some very good examples of um, great communities out in the marketplace. That is for sure. There's some terrible ones too, but the point is you just can't rule everything out. Now, architecture and the idea of, um, of where stock is being produced in the marketplace does create a two-tiered market. And I think when, uh, again, a lot of professionals talk about stock. They talk about it in general terms, but we need to be a little bit more specific. And I want to give you some specific terms when it comes to understanding that 51% of real estate that uh, is coming to market is not created yet. Um, And so we need to use that information in your lifetime, uh, in the cycle's that you live through, in the monopoly board that you're traveling around, 51% more stock is coming. And so that is going to be good stock. That's going to be bad stock. It's going to be, uh, there's going to be sustainable stock. There's going to be eco stock. There's going to be all sorts of stock coming to influence the real estate marketplace. And you just need to be across it, right? There's nothing to fear. In fact, 
the next couple of years there's is really hard that uh, there's there's a lack of stock coming through the system in the short term. So uh, some of the ways to look at certainly space, if you like, spaces, locations, is this two-tier philosophy. And I've used the two-tier philosophy for the last 10 years. The reality is you can walk down the same street, there's two homes on it, one's really well designed, one's not. Uh, the price gap between those two properties is huge. It's massive. It can be hundreds of thousands of dollars. You can walk down the same street. Uh, there's two apartment complexes. One is designed as an architectural statement. One is a homogenous box. Um, the price difference between the two is chalk and cheese. And quite often we'll use terminology like the median value in a suburb or that all apartments are shite. Well, that's not true whatsoever. In fact, if you look at the biggest sale on record in 2021, it was a $60 million apartment in Sydney, right? So not all apartments can be shite if uh, someone's willing to pay 60 mil for an apartment. So the point of the conversation is you've got to look a lot deeper to understand where the significance of architecture actually lies. And you can go to suburbs all around our cities and see examples of good real estate and right next door, bad real estate. And the price differential is something that property investors need to comprehend. So... Uh, when we examine cities, we've certainly got some space issues. The first space issue, in my view, is spaces of crisis. Um, and this is where today some of the investors are being locked out of spaces which are highly priced. So suburbs which are basically uh, the best alpha suburbs of their cities they for property investors these are crisis spaces it's hard to get in you need a lot of money to play if you do get in property doesn't go up by the hundred thousand or the ten thousand it goes up by the million uh we've got a lot of broken spaces broken spaces are suburbs which are fundamentally run down and not gentrifying your fundamentally seeing a lot of broken spaces in society inequality is a real thing. We've got uneven development. This is the two-tier market dynamic. Good house, next door bad house. Good building, next door bad building. Then we've got highly iconic spaces. We've got, um, you know, new ideas coming into our cities. We've got six-star residents. We've got the hotelification of real estate. We've got iconic spaces, which if you can get your hands on them, you're going to do very well. Uh, there's only, many, only so many properties on Brisbane River or there's only so many Bayside properties in Melbourne or there's only so much of Sydney Harbour to go around. The iconicness of getting a hold of that makes property investment a lot of money. And we've got a, a lot of extremely standard places when it comes to architecture that uh, fundamentally the fire economy loves extremely standard places. It looks at something which has no uh, previous history and designs on it, extremely standard. However, some design on that extremely standard place becomes quite amazing. And so, um, you know, you can go to, for example, the city of Springfield in Brisbane and you can, uh, you can see different examples of what was an extremely standard piece of land becoming iconic. Uh, you can go to the Brookwater Golf Course Estate, iconic real estate within what would be argued as a standard city. So all of a sudden spaces and the architecture that is formed on those spaces becomes rather interesting to real estate investors. Now, when it comes to real estate investment, we have two dynamics. Real estate, for the most part, is illiquid. Um, if you want your money back 
from your real estate, it can take months to get your money back, right? Uh, It's not the share market. It's not the crypto market. You can fundamentally get your money back within a day or two within those uh, those. Uh, asset classes. It's not money in the bank. You can't go down to the bank and get a withdrawal. Real estate is liquid. It is not liquid. However, the more iconic your real estate is, the more liquid it actually becomes. And so from a wealth point of view, um, the better we choose real estate, the more ability or the less risk it carries because the more liquid it is. In other words, if there's less of it, more people want it, then, um, you know, you've got a very liquid piece of real estate. And of course, in a downturn, if you do need to sell and you're holding an illiquid piece of real estate, you've got to deal with that situation. And quite often that means a lack of demand and of course, a slower rate of sale. Now, a lot of property investors have illiquid real estate because they are spending three, four, five, six hundred thousand dollars $600,000. If you can spend a little bit more, you're probably going to get an illiquid piece of real estate, uh, sorry, a liquid piece of real estate, which is easier to sell. So, Capital, uh, the fire economy, if you like, creates uh, properties. And you've got to understand here in Australia, uh, going back to population economics, you know, we, uh, prior to coronavirus, you know, we were creating a new person every one minute and 32 seconds. Um, The intent is to go back to that, to create one person every one minute and 32 seconds. I think it's down to about one person every sort of five minutes at the moment because migration is a little bit slower. But think about the challenge of, uh, you know, creating, um, you know, a, a house every five minutes basically to keep up with a new person. It's ridiculously difficult. And so REITs and the fire economy, um, when the time is right in their world, they bring real estate to the marketplace. And this is again where we start to see spaces which make no commercial sense appear in the marketplace. And when the market goes through a period of oversupply, which is not due to around 2026, you start to see what is known as zombie urbanism, which is just the idea that uh, properties are built, but fundamentally the neighborhood and the surrounds and the properties rarely get lived in. So you get this kind of zombie effect of the neighborhood. Now, a good example of zombie urbanism is the Docklands Precinct in Melbourne. Uh, The buildings that were produced in Docklands for the last 30 years, some of them are certainly lived in. Uh, However, a lot of them are basically lockups for overseas foreign investors. And so um, quite often we call this the Dubai effect. The reality is uh, much of the Dubai market is full of high rises. Um, and really, if you've ever been to Dubai, there's a lot of, um, you know, I guess, uh, workers that come from, you know, third world countries that are kind of drafted in to build these buildings. And the opulence of the real estate is at a high level. Uh, but no one lives in them. And really, this is where you see this idea of almost like international money laundering, where people are parking money outside of economies, which they have a bad relationship with. So a lot of, for example, Chinese people don't trust the Chinese Communist Party. So what do they do? They move assets offshore, they buy real estate. Um, in sometimes what is known as zombie urbanism. It is real estate that they're promoted. Um, local people wouldn't buy it because there is no um, there is no history of people living in a place like Docklands. And all of a sudden you get this architectural dramatic piece of uh, urbanism which really fails to 
uh, you know, ignite. And of course, property investors read that in the newspaper and then create an association with a place like Zombie Urbanism and Docklands, which is designed around money laundering and international uh, money being taken out of a larger economy and put into the Australian economy. Everyone's across it, but the property investor kind of gets this wrong association with what is going on when it comes to uh, the idea of, for example, a typology of, um, in this example, apartments. And uh, so zombie urbanism is a thing. It's it's designed off the back of the uh, off the fire economy, off banks needing to move money, off REITs, real estate investment trusts mo- needing to get money out there, off insurance companies needing to constantly sign up more insurance uh, so that they've got the right revenues, right? So the first one is zombie urbanism. Um, Certainly, we also see ghost urbanism, less so in Australia. Um, You know, it's, it's probably very widely reported in China. There are something like 20 million vacant properties in China. In China, you know, the Chinese government builds ghost cities, basically pre-builds the city before the population is invited to live within the city. And, you know, it's very common to go through Chinese uh, places and and travel around China and you'll see uh, buildings which are built on the outside. Inside, they haven't had the kitchen put in or the bathroom put in, but they're, they're fundamentally shells inside. And you get this sort of ghost urbanism effect. Um, Many parts of Europe have experienced ghost urbanism. And ghost urbanism is is something which can create a problem into the future from a real estate perspective. That properties get built first, then the people are invited to buy them. Um, You know, we've seen downturns of ghost urbanism in places like Spain, Ireland, and recently you're seeing one in China. Um, you know, the, the uh, you know, the company over there, what is it called? Evergreen, um, going into liquidation, the biggest developer in China built literally millions and millions of properties and haven't sold them. They're just standing there as ghost uh, icons right now. Now, Australia uh, gets involved in zombie urbanism. We do build places like Docklands um, around Australia. There's there's many examples of them. You can go to, you know, uh, one could argue Homebush is really uh, started out as zombie urbanism. Uh, Hamilton Harbour in Brisbane, zombie urbanism. Um, it's just the idea that big companies and big REITs need to create something. They need to spend the money um, and get the money out there, right? There's a lot of money. There's more money at the top of the funnel than there is at the bottom of the funnel. We don't necessarily experience too much ghost urbanism. There isn't, um, you know, this uh, problem, I guess, you would associate with with people taking the risk of building and then, uh, no one living in those buildings. And the last time we really saw uh, a lot of unsold stock as ghost urbanism was probably before the GFC, 2006, 2007. There was a lot of ghost buildings. There was a lot of built stock that was unsold. And so it was a really good time actually to do big deals. So, uh, when we think about, I guess, the idea of what we can do from a real estate perspective, we uh, can sort of maybe classify, classify real estate uh, based on, you know, the, uh, the same principles as money. You know, countries and money uh, inside of countries. Countries get a rating. You know, Australia has a, a AAA rating, right? Um, so why doesn't real estate have a AAA rating? If something's from a federation era, it would be a AAA property, right? And I think for property investors, we want to buy within this sort of AAA space, AA, A plus A, triple B, uh, double B, B real estate section 
if we can and try and do that as much as possible by involving design and architecture. And, uh, you know, let's face it, 51% of properties that are coming to market um, don't exist right now. A lot of them are going to be what we would refer to as homogenous designed real estate. It's just designed very simply, very cost effectively. Remember, real estate is driven from finance. If people can't afford to buy real estate, then the simpler the property will become. And as you know, most areas we're going to see properties, I think um, the million dollar barrier for a house has you know, you know, is um, is the new norm, right? I think most people are, are going to pay over a million dollars for a new house um, or a house, if you like. And a lot of what that means is, um, you know, how do you find land, which is a certain price, and then put a home on it and make that price mathematically work for the marketplace, what we are seeing is really the shrinkation of real estate. So you start to see real estate either shrink to match the market cost or you start to see the transformation of poor designs. And I say this to a lot of my clients uh, as much as I, I possibly can, that sometimes price and is like Price, cost, and value are three different things, right? You need to comprehend that. And again, I'll say that again. Price, cost, and value are all different. The price, just so you know, I mean, I'm sure you all know this, but the price is the amount you pay to acquire something. The cost is the actual cost to produce something. So you may pay more than the cost to produce something. You may pay for something, but to improve it costs extensively more. So you've maybe bought something which is a lemon and it costs too much to bring it up to what we would determine to be good value. And so price and costs are different. Value, again, is different. Value is fundamentally the use of, a, of something to a consumer. How valuable do they perceive the use? And so, uh, obviously, uh, if we were to use, architecturally speaking, a turn-of-the-century federation home, uh, the price is the price. Uh, the cost to re-emulate that property would be too prohibitive. But the value to the marketplace is highly priced because, again, it becomes like, uh, you know, who gets to own the Monet? Who gets to own the Van Gogh? And so no different to art. Real estate and the art market have very, very, very common links. You can, um, you'll find the best real estate gets Van Gogh prices and, uh, you know, the more homogenous real estate really uh, is just like a, a reproduction of a print, right? That's just the, the way it is. Now, I hear what you're saying. Um, well, if architecture is a way to create money and I've got a certain budget, how do I play in this space? And these are things that constantly go through my brain. How do I find my customers architectural um, opportunities? And so uh, at the moment, you know, I spend a lot of my time um, finding golf course estates. Architecturally, the golf course is a statement. It's something that's very, very interesting. It It's different to the rest of the market. It's more scarce than the rest of the market. Golf course homes, architecturally golf course significant homes, beautiful. Um, I spend a lot of my time working on eco-villages, something which is going to stand out in the green economy, which architecturally speaking for $650,000 makes a lot of sense. Uh, I work a lot of my time on what I would call as living sculptures. Remember the idea of architecture. The idea of architecture is shelter. It is creating community. 
and it is storing or creating or manifesting wealth. And living sculptures, if you like, are great ways to accomplish that. They create better communities, better communities enjoy living in places longer. Um, and of course, you know, uh, when something is designed interestingly and is more scarce, the storage of wealth is much higher. And again, when we go back to that barometer of liquidity, living sculptures are more liquidable than uh, homogenous real estate. Um, and obviously, uh, for me, I also spend a lot of time with future technologies. I'm a big believer that the right buildings, the right homes, uh, bringing with them some of the future technologies, um, just simple design benefits add so much value to to real estate, right? Um, things like solar, electric car chargers. You know, it's well recognized in the real estate community that properties design well, that maybe have an architectural element to them as a statement tend to be more scarce, right? And when you think about it, it's this scarcity, which is the liquid essence of of real estate. This is the stuff that makes things sell faster. When things sell faster, people pay more for them. And so think about the scarcity and the liquidity spectrum. You've got cash, treasury bonds, very, very liquid. You've got highly rated corporate bonds, liquid. You've got, um, you've got the stock market, really liquid. Um, you've got uh, the crypto market, liquid. You've got... Um, You've got real estate assets, lot less illiquid. Um, you know they're they're on the other spectrum, right? Then you got businesses, you know, virtually not liquid. Um, you you know, it's, have you ever tried to sell a business? Very very difficult, right? A very very difficult proposition. So real estate just sits one step in front of um, of uh, business. You know, if the interest rates today were I don't know, 7%. Do you know how hard it would be to sell real estate? It would be so difficult, so difficult. No one would want it, right? And so to get your money back would be a lot harder. But the more capable your asset is, the more it moves out of being illiquid to completely liquid. And again, uh, selling a beautiful design contemporary home in a 7% interest rate marketplace is not going to be a problem. Selling a living sculpture apartment is not going to be a problem because, again, we call that the flight to quality style of the marketplace. When there is, uh, you know, harder times in real estate, it's the quality that people still buy because, uh, you know, it, there's only so much of it to go around. So architecture is this is this amazing thing, right? And uh, again, um, you know, I think culture and architecture just go side by side. Uh, and in economics, that idea of culture manifesting culture. Remember, the three principles of architecture are to provide shelter, manifest a culture, and to store or manifest wealth. Right. If you can get that in a property, great. If you can get that in a in in a public realm, that's great as well. Now, remember, not all architecture is about houses or apartments. Architecture is about the public realm, and really, in civic architecture, we often refer to the Bilbao effect. Uh, the Bilbao effect is just something which I've highlighted many times. I think on on this podcast series that. Um, you know, there's there's a city in Spain. It's a very innocuous city. I've been there. It's called Bilbao. For many, many years, no one would travel to Bilbao. If people went to Spain, they would go to San Sebastian, Pamplona. They would go to Sevilla, Barcelona. Uh, no one would travel to Bilbao. The town planners of Bilbao said, let's do something about that. Let's change the culture of Bilbao. Let's create a piece of architecture which uh, stores the most amazing art in the world and people will come to Bilbao. And of course, 
Uh, Frank Geary, the famous architect, designed the Guggenheim. And today, if you travel to Europe, not that so many people are traveling right now, but in more normal times, uh, Bilbao is one of the big stops on the map because rather like the Louvre is to Paris, the Guggenheim uh, is the uh, Bilbao effect, if you like, for Bilbao. It basically brings people to the city. It enhances the public realm. It enhances business. It enhances uh, public space, if you like. And, um, you know, I look back uh, on, you know, my top 20 days on earth and one of them was uh, smashing a stake right next door to the Guggenheim with uh, the soccer team, um, the soccer team from that city. Um, And uh, we had a big bender that night. It was um, absolutely an amazing, amazing top day of my life. Um, I don't know. It was, uh, you know, uh, an absolute cracker. But the point is cities around the world use this Babel effect to, again, improve the lifestyle, livability, improve the commerce within a city. If you look at Hobart, you know, Hobart did this. They created the Mona. Mona um, is, you know, a, a great modern art gallery. Um, I, you could probably track the capital growth of Hobart versus when Mona began. Mona brought with it a lot of extra culture that was missing from Hobart. A lot of people who travelled to Hobart from the mainland of Australia started to see, well, Hobart's got a bit going for it. It's, uh, it's nice, it's pretty, it's a beautiful city, there's not a lot of real estate around. Um, and all of a sudden, we've got this really artsy precinct which is if you go there, you know, you're going to have a nice lunch, glass of wine, see some cool art, catch the ferry back to the the main square of Hobart. And all of a sudden you're like, well, this livability of this place is very, very strong. And of course, you know, you could, um, you know, maybe I should Google that. When did the Mona open and what has been the correlating capital growth rates? And again, we're starting to see some of this architectural influence on the real estate market unfold. We will see it next in Brisbane. Brisbane has the uh, Echo Entertainment Casino being dropped on its doorstep. This particular iconic piece of architecture is going to transform the city. It's going to uh, transform what the city means for the rest of the world. People will want to see it. Um, It is a focus on the public realm. Even though it's a dirty casino to lose money, the actual architecture is uh, up there with, for example, the Marina Bay Sands in uh, in um, Singapore, right? And of course, many people uh, fly to Singapore um, for a stopover just to again stand on that iconic building um, and see what it's all about. So, architecture and spaces are really at the heart of society. And the more your society has great spaces, the more the market of that city is going to propel forward. And if you look at Sydney, you know, it is, I've always said, Sydney is, a, is the leading indicator of the rest of Australia's property market, where it can get to, the extreme levels it can fly to, right? And if you look at Sydney, you know, the iconic architecture in Sydney basically created brand Sydney, right? Uh, the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge, you cannot get more iconic than that for Australia. And again, two architecturally significant pieces of infrastructure. Um, really, you know, uh, it, like the use of them and the uptake of them is not the conversation, even though they're very, very good pieces of infrastructure, they galvanize what the city means. And again, when your city gets this, it starts to propel into a new direction. Hobart um, has got the Guggenheim effect. Sydney, the Guggenheim effect. Melbourne, absolutely the Guggenheim effect. Um, 
And of course, Brisbane is getting the Guggenheim effect, which again will make uh, the place itself and the economics of it just uh, just really perform. And again, these are the natural assets amplifying the natural assets of the city. If you go to Mona and Hobart in natural. Uh, it amplifies the waterways of Hobart. There's a very, very nice water um, system there. The, what's it called? The D- Derwent River. Uh, if you go to Brisbane, the new iconic e- Echo Entertainment Casino is going to be on the river. It will amplify Brisbane as a river city. Sydney, the Harbour City, uh, the Harbour Bridge, and, of course, the Opera House amplifies the harbour. And, again, um, you know, you put two and two together. If you can afford it as a property investor to buy near the river of Brisbane, you're going to get the amplifying effect, the Babau effect of economics. If you, um, you know, you're in um, uh, Hobart, if you buy on the Derwent River, um, and uh, you know, uh, you're you're probably going to get the amplifying effect of of the of the Mona uh, in that area. If you can buy close to Sydney Harbour. Again, you're going to get the amplifying effect, right? So good architecture brings with it great brands and uh, and good results. Um, and so uh, we are going to go through a little bit of the history of architecture. But I am going to have to come back and do this as a part two because we are already at 50 minutes. So uh, hopefully... Um, What you have heard so far is of interest and you will tune in next week to hear part two of the history of Australian architecture. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favourite app or on YouTube. I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.